I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adam Young Golf. So today we have a guest who, we have a lot of topics to explore with him, but on this episode, we're going to talk about putting. We are joined by Carl Morris. Carl, thanks for taking time out of your day. I know it's later in the night over there, but thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me, John. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, it should be fun. You were kind enough to have both Adam and myself on your podcast, The Brain Booster, and... Now we're returning the favor. We had such nice conversations. We'd like to have you on ours. So for those who don't know you, Carl, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your business, the mind factor, and what you do in golf? Yeah, I've been uh, very, very lucky, John. Managed to avoid working for a living for the last 30 years or so. <laughs> nice. In that time, I, uh, you know, as Adam can relate, I, I started off playing golf pretty quickly and to cut a very long story short, turned professional and in the early days, like a lot of guys wanted to play for a living, but was spectacularly unsuccessful at, the, at that quest. And then I turned to coaching and what I started to do with my coaching was pretty much replicate all of the things that had destroyed me as a player in the sense that I used to, I used to give golf lessons where I gave out loads of information sounded very knowledgeable and very wise, but really got frustrated seeing that the lack of improvement of people. What was going on with me that the sort of promising player had turned into a little bit of a basket case and seeing so many golfers come to me, hit the ball reasonably well when I was there, but never really improved. And I actually left the game for a couple of years away and studied various approaches I, I wasn't involved in golf at all and I, I got to, I started to do work with helping people on habit control and things like that and luckily I think that those two years allowed me to sort of step out of the system and see the system a little bit better and I came back and, and started to work much more on the performance element of the game what was what was going on in terms of the gap between people's potential and their actual performance I got lucky in the early days working with a couple of players in the in the north region of England that Adam would know who did pretty well. That led the opportunity to work with some players like Lee Westwood and Darren Clark, Paul McGinley, Graham McDowell, who, who did okay. And sort of 25 years further on, we're, we're, we're still here asking. Not, I've not got all the answers, that's for sure, but I think I asked some, some better questions than I did 30 years ago. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, for a number of years, people had been, and I took a hiatus from reading golf books as I was trying to write my own, but everyone kept saying, you got to read these lost art books. And 
you were nice enough to send me this beautiful box set. And you, there, there's three books that you co-wrote with Gary Nichol, correct? Correct, yeah. Gary's a golf professional in beautiful part of Scotland, right near, near Muirfield, a place called Archerfield. So I think that the philosophy that you share is not too dissimilar from the philosophy Adam and I talk about on the show. But why don't you tell us a little overview of what The Lost Art is, the books in general, why you wrote them? Because I... I Based on the first one I read, I absolutely loved it. And, you know, just tell people a little bit about the philosophy and why you wrote them. I suppose it was an attempt, John. There's a bit of a balancing act, really, in the sense that I'm no Luddite. And I do think science can be very, very valuable in the in the quest to improve people's golf. But what certainly Gary and myself were seeing were, was just so many people coming along who were, there's a great phrase, drowning in information but thirsting for knowledge in the sense that they'd got all this technical stuff that they'd been given, you know, in the golf swing about ground reaction forces and all the, all the track man stuff. And as I say, whilst that has a very, very valuable place, we, we felt that, you know, we grew up in this sort of Seve era, we're, we're greatly influenced by him. And, and to actually perform on the golf course, yes, there is science underpinning a, a good way or a better way or a more efficient way to swing the golf club. But actually, it can be at real at the detriment of art and, and the ability to, to create golf shots. And what is the game ultimately all about? Well, if you quest to, to improve and you, you quest to be a better player, it ultimately comes down to one single thing. And that one sing, thing, thing, single thing is shots. What are the shots that you play? And we, we're a sort of great believer in that if you, if you start with the shot, does the shot create the swing or does the swing create the shot? A great believer if you start with the shot and understand a little bit more about what creates shots, you can create a great collaboration with the golf pro that you work with, but ultimately freeing yourself up to be a little bit more exploratory and artistic and, and bringing some feel back into the game. And it, it seemed to, the, the themes in the putting book seemed to resonate with people. And then we wrote the book about the, the lost art of the game itself. And, you know, it's been really refreshing to hear people's thoughts on it, the, the idea that you can go out and actually be on the golf course and, and set yourself free from swing prison and, and let some of the shackles go and, and explore what you could possibly do as a player to, cre to create better golf shots. When we're analysing the golf swing uh, in forums with professional teachers, often some will post up a swing and they'll be asking, you know, what do you think about this swing? Well, the good coaches usually respond by what was the intention or what was the shot they were trying to play as well. You know, there's I remember seeing... It was a video or series of videos of lots and lots of different professionals hitting shots, and they were all much steeper than we would used to be seeing. And it was just a, a hole that they were playing off where they were all trying to fade it. And so I know you mentioned, you know, does the shot create the swing or does the swing create the shot? Obviously, there can be a, a bit of both. You could look at it from either angle, but certainly the intention that you have, the shot that you're trying to play is going to change the mechanics and... I did a video once where I, I hit five different shots. So it was a, a task where I'm trying to hit a big fade, a small fade, a small draw, and a big draw, and then something in between. And I wasn't thinking about my swing at all during that. I was just thinking about the shot shape that I want to play and maybe some things about how I want the club to move through impact. And I actually used that as an example of what we call self-organization because I showed the extremities, the 
the big fade and the big draw and the mechanics were incredibly different. You know, where the shaft was coming on, the downswing, how I took the club away was completely different. So, uh, you know, I think that's a nice point that you made or a little side point to what you're talking about, Carl. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that you just used the word there, Adam. I think that it's, it's something there, for, you know, for all your listeners is so central to getting the best out of yourself and enjoying the game, and that's that's intention. We have evolved to organise movement around a clear intention. You know, we survived as a result. We've been able to throw things and sling things and, you know, secure prey and things like that. And, you know, for, fortunately, in, in many ways, when we, when we were roaming around in caves and we had to secure lunch for the day, there wasn't too many, uh, you know, spear throwing coaches around. Otherwise, we may we may never have uh, we may never have developed as a species. And I think, in some ways, we've lost sight of that. That we are designed to be able to use implements. You know, people don't have too many problems with pens and scalpels and hammers and screwdrivers and things like that because they have a a very clear intention, and the body organises around that intention. You know, you'll you'll be. Very familiar, Adam, with the with the Nikolai Bernstein experiments years ago about the you know the blacksmiths and how all the blacksmiths' movements were different every single time they intended to a, a nail or whatever it was, but they actually you know hit the nail with the hammer pretty much every time because they, the body organised around that intention. And I think you know a really good way of looking at it for everybody if you if you sort of break it down to a really really simple formula, we talk a lot about intention, attention, and attitude in the sense of what is your intention here with this particular shot or particular put or particular chip? Get really clear on what your intention is and then understand preferably with the help and assistance of of a good coach is where does your attention need to be to give you the best possible chance to make the intention come true? But then what underpins all of it, we believe, and it's so relevant for putting, is what is your attitude going to be to the outcome? Because I think the biggest thing that holds people back, especially on the greens, is resistance to outcomes. When we, when we resist an outcome, when we don't want ha- an outcome to happen, when we fear an outcome, then the quality of the intention and certainly the quality of the attention become really clouded. So I think often the best place to, for people to start is to look at the attitude element. What, what is your relationship to outcomes? Because... I think when you can develop a sense of acceptance to, to outcomes, acceptance creates great freedom. You know, if you, it sounds a really negative thing to say on the greens, but we talk a lot about the, you know, if you're absolutely okay with the prospect that you could miss this putt, which you certainly can, when you're okay with the possibility that you could miss, you're absolutely free to hold it then. And I think we often start too much at the front end and don't look enough at the far end of each shot in terms of the attitude we bring to it. Do you think anyone had the yips when they were hunting and gathering 50,000 years ago with a bow and arrow? (laughs) That's got me thinking. I suspect it was quite a rare occurrence if it was, John, that's for sure. I think those ones would have gotten eaten, right? Yeah, 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 that was a feast or famine scenario. They would have just had to live off the plants, wouldn't they? (laughs) Well, there's a lot of great ideas in the book, and we're obviously not going to get to all of them. I have some notes on some of the, the bigger ideas that I liked, and Adam will have some of his own. I wanted to start with the, and this was early in the book, I think this is one of the more transformative things about putting in general. Let's talk about the idea of setting your own narrative, like the story you tell yourself of what kind of putter you are. 
because I, I think this is a massive problem for even tour players or beginner to intermediate players. So can we explore that a little bit, the idea of the narrative and story you tell yourself on the greens and, and even off the greens too? If somebody said to me, John, what's the most influential book that you've ever read? I would say it's a book called Redirect by, I think he's a Yale or a Harvard professor, a guy called Timothy Wilson. Redirect, the subtitle is The Stories That We Live By. And he basically, a number of years ago when I read the book, it really became clear to me that we're all just a bunch of stories. You know, we create a narrative about ourselves and about our abilities. And inside of our head, there's something called the thinker and the prover in the sense that what the thinker thinks, the prover aims to prove. So if I create a story that I'm poor on the greens, that I'm a bad putter, my thinker goes goes with those thoughts, and then the prover is constantly searching for confirmation of that story or that thought. So every time I three-put, every time I have a bad day on the greens, that confirmation is is created to enhance the story. So the more that we repeat the story, the more that we talk with others about the story, you know, putting especially is something that, you know, I'm sure Adam will relate to this. You know, I can think back to days when I was playing. It was almost a badge of honor that people would wear around the neck that they were a great ball striker. They couldn't wait to tell you how many greens they did in regulation. If anybody was a good putter, it was almost like, well, he's not much of a ball striker, but he's a bit of a blade merchant. He holds everything kind of, as as though it was against the rules. So a little bit different now in the modern world, but I think people have, especially with the short game, have almost wallowed in, in, in the misery of the performance on the green and the story gets stronger and stronger. And until you change that narrative, until you change the story that you carry around with you, you can spend a lot of time working on technique and, and lots of great theories, but not much will happen until you until you actually change that story. You know, I'm reminded of the I'm sure you've heard it, that famous story with Harvey Pennick sitting having dinner with uh, Tom Kite and Ben Crenshaw the night before they both went out on the PGA Tour. I think it was Tom Kite said to uh, Mr. Pennick, he said, if there's one single piece of advice you'd, you'd give us, Mr. Pennick, for a long career, what would it be? And he looked at them both and he smiled. He said, make sure you go to dinner with good putters. And what sounds like a throwaway comment had some genius to it because what, what Harvey Pennick knew instinctively was that spending time around people who moan about the putting and, and create that narrative can be hugely detrimental. So I think, you know, the, the upshot of it is be very aware or, or become very aware of the narrative that you create, not, not only just in putting, but, but your whole game. What is the story that you create about your capabilities? As I say, if you don't adjust the story, the performance will always be uh, would, would, would always match that uh, that storyline. Yeah, I think it's something you have to be cognizant of because something you said in there is that, and I struggle with this probably in my wedge game now. My narrative is very poor, but I've I've shifted the narrative in putting, and I, I've found that the difference between before and after is more. It affects what information you absorb on the golf course. So if you think you're a crappy putter. As you said, you're you're kind of looking for affirmation of that. You're going to be paying attention to the three pots or the missed five footers and all of that. And it just kind of sticks around in your pre-shot routine. Like you bring it to the next tee and it's just kind of this stench that follows you around. It's not very pleasant. Whereas I thought you mentioned a story that I've heard several times now about Jack Nicholas in the book where you can tell it. I think someone asked him in a press conference if he had ever missed a three-footer or inside of 
three feet in a major championship. Tell that story really quickly because I thought it was excellent. It's a brilliant story, John. It, it may not be true, but it's that good a story. Let's pretend that it is at least. <laughs> I believe it's true based on what I know about Jack Nicklaus. Yeah, I'm sure it is true, but the story goes that I think he was giving a Jack was giving a presentation at his son's university, and he made the comment that he said to the audience that I. I've never missed a putt inside three foot on the back nine of a major tournament. And he's about to continue on with the story. And there's a little guy puts his hand up in the audience and he said, but Mr. Nicholas, he said, I saw you recently in the US Seniors Open and you definitely miss one from inside three feet on the back nine. And Nicholas glared at him and he said, I have never missed from inside three feet on the back nine of a major tournament. Again, tried to continue with the talk. And the little guy stands up. He said, but Mr. Nicholas, I've got a video. I can send it to you if you like. And Nicholas continued to say, he said, I've never missed from inside three feet. And he continued on with the rest of the presentation. And apparently the story goes that whoever the little uh, little chat was, that he, Bob Rotella was in the audience. And he goes up to Bob at the end of it and he said, I said Dr. Rotella, he said, what's wrong with Nicholas? Why won't he admit to missing that, that short putt? And Bob apparently looked at him and said, tell me, do you play golf? He said, yeah. He said, well, what do you play? He said, 18. He said, if you missed the shot, put would you remember it? He said, of course I'd remember it. And Bob just let the pause just take over. He said, let me get this right. Jack Nicholas, the greatest golfer that's ever lived, and you, who play off 18, and you want Jack to think like you. <laughs> there was a study done. I can't remember the specifics of it, but I know Darren Brown, he recreated it. And he was looking at luck and he asked certain people, you know, what do you think? Or do you think you're a lucky person? And some people categorize themselves as lucky, some people not so lucky. And then he did an experiment where he placed $5 or it would have been five pounds on the floor and let these people walk past it. And what they found was the, poli- the people who believed they were lucky were far more likely to see that $5. It wasn't that there was any difference in the environment. It was just that to what John said earlier, that their brains were absorbing different information. And so, you know, the visuals that we keep recreating in our head as Jack Nicholas, you know, he, he chose not to recreate the bad visuals, right? He chose to recreate the good things and chose to tell himself the good stories. And I mean, we can say from our knowledge on the brain that it, things like that can literally rewire the brain and change what you notice in your environment. So the stories that we we tell ourselves are going to change basically our reality. And, you know, how does this relate to golf? How does this relate to putting? Well, if you're standing on a green and you believe you're a good putter, you're going to absorb a hell of a lot more information about the, the line, the speed, the break, than if you believed you were a bad putter. And so, you know, these stories kind of tie together. Just on that point, though, Adam, and it's, you know, people probably listen thinking it's all well and good them saying that, but, you know, I miss a load of putts. <laughs> what do I do about that? Well, it's, it's important to understand that we as humans have a negativity bias. Again, that's a survival mechanism that's, that's been wired into us. And there's a guy called Rick Jensen who has a great saying for this. And he talks about Velcro and Teflon. And the idea being that good experiences, we tend to just let them slip away like, like Teflon. Nothing sticks with the good experience. But a poor experience or misputs tend to be like Velcro that we, you know, we cling onto them and we hold onto them and they have a much stronger hold over us. So we're battling against an inherent instinctive bias that we have inside of our brain. So that's why 
for many, many years said to players, what you do after a round of golf is, is really, really important in terms of how you reflect on it. And to counter that natural negativity bias, and I've always suggested, let's say, for instance, somebody wanted to change the story with the putting, but they start building it by, after a round, what was the three best putts that you hit today, or the two best putts, or the one best putt, whatever it is, and actually physically write that down in a book. And as I understand it, whatever you recall, you rehearse. So as you spend that couple of minutes writing out the three best putts of the day in some detail, not only are you solidifying the memory, so you're creating a a Velcro effect for the memory, but you're, as you say, you're actually rewiring the brain to go in search of more of those experiences. So, you know, this idea of changing the story, you can't just sort of sit under a tree and say, right, I'm going to change my story tonight and I'm going to be a great putter tomorrow. But you can understand a little bit more about how your brain works, its natural bias towards negativity, and sort of think, well, I can either carry on doing that for the rest of my life or I can take some active steps. Now, if you're really interested in becoming the best player that you can be, writing out the three best shots or the three best puts that you've hit might not seem that valuable at the time, but I promise you the cumulative impact of that over a period of time. Any player that I've ever worked with who's stuck by that has really had you know, some interesting results as, you know, as a result of doing that little ritual. This literally happened to me two days ago. I think I was telling you about before we started recording, Carl, my, our, we had a club championship qualifier this weekend, which is a you know a big deal for us at the club. We get all amped up about this. And I struck it really well. I posted a really good score, but it was one of those rounds where I'm like, I really could have gone even lower. And after I walked off the course, my, a friend of mine had asked me how it went. I said, yeah, I shot a good score, but I putted like crap. And the greens were a little slower than normal. And I just, for whatever reason, was struggling with the speed. But I did what I always try and do is go through an exercise to review every shot. And what that revealed was, is I actually made a lot of eight footers. I had, I three putted twice in kind of, I think they were points in the round where it was one of those moments where I could have gone deeper and it maybe halted my momentum a little bit. And those were kind of sticking out in my mind. But when I went back to kind of analyze things, I'm like, you actually putted quite well. You made a decent amount of putts. And fortunately, that made me feel better about the round in general. I'm like, everything went pretty well. There's nothing to be upset about. You know, you three putted a couple of times, but you know, that happens. Taken in context with everything else. And now I did, I didn't have that foul taste in my mouth about it and I, I didn't carry it on so yeah we, we talk about reviewing your rounds all the time on this show and it, it's just it's so important because if you focus too much on the negative stuff like you said our, our brains are wired to do then that narrative continues so it is I fight it myself it, it's really important you know even in the worst round that we've ever played if you if you sift back through it there'll be some good shots in there there'll be some good things that you've done some good decisions but as you say John I think we look an awful lot at what we do before we play, you know, the warm-up, the round itself, obviously what we do in between shots. But I think the low-hanging fruit for a lot of people is what they do after a round, the way that they, the narrative that they create, the conversations that we have that we have with other people. They all say misery loves company. There's never never, oh, yeah. never <laughs> a truer phrase, is there? And But, you know, just being aware of that, that as you... As you sit in the you know the clubhouse grill and talk about how bad you've putted, 
you know, it might be amusing to your buddies, but actually you're not doing yourself any favors because you're reinforcing those pathways in your brain. The thinker and prover are on full alert and they're taking note of that and reinforcing that story. And, you know, I see it at the, at the high levels of the game that, you know, I've worked with a number of players over the years who, who convince themselves that they're dreadful at putting, but when they actually look at it and review it more effectively, they get a more realistic picture of the, of, of the truth. And I think, you know, TV also does a, a sort of injustice doesn't it or, or misdirects us that you know we're watching tv and we're watching the best players in the world having the best weeks of the of the year and puts are going in all over the place and we think that's normal when when the reality of you know i'm sure you guys have talked about you know percentage make rates and things like that where uh, people don't hold footage after footage of puts all, all the time so realistic expectations within this can again be a, a powerful ally in, in just getting the best out of yourself i am that golfer who's convinced myself that i'm not <laughs> great at putting and it is a pure ego thing because like you said right at the start of the podcast I, i'm the golfer who wants to pride myself on ball striking so what better way to do that than to walk into the clubhouse after and say i hit it like a pro but why wasn't my score like a pro then? Oh, well, I just putted awful. And I told myself that for so many years. And honestly, it does change how you think as you stand over a putt. Like I can stand over a 10 foot putt and I'm not even trying to hold it. In my entire routine, I'm just lining it up thinking, right, let's not three putt this. And that, that just shouldn't be happening. And, you know, I have to take control over that. I get very lazy with stuff like this. I, this is going to be a great podcast for me because it's good to be reminded of this. But yeah, I, one of the best periods I had with putting was when I was understanding this stuff that we're talking about here and I was actively practicing it, you know, actively forgetting the bad putts and remembering the good ones. I experienced them myself, Adam. It's that, you know, it's almost as a bit of macho chest banging, isn't it? The fact that you've raked a three iron into the middle of the green, but we don't often give the same kudos to it. And I think, it, again, it's the narrative that you create. I think if you can fall in love with the idea of creating putts, because we don't have any problem with the idea of creating shots, but if you can fall in love with the idea of creating putts, I think that that again changes the dynamic and, and, and the whole, this is what people have said who've read the book, the whole art element of creating puts, I think can can release a, an awful lot of wonderful creativity. You know, there's there's a lot of things that you can explore in terms of the imagery that you use and what you focus your attention on. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We love the idea of being a great ball striker. And uh, as I said previously, People get called blade merchants and things like that, don't they, if they're a, if they're a good putter, almost as though it's cheating. This stuff doesn't just apply to putting as well. I mean, you can you can flip that on its head if there's someone who's a good putter and is a bad ball striker. I used to remember my home golf course, the 13th hole. I always used to hit it awful. Why? Because one time under a severe pressure situation, I hit it left out of bounds. And I rehearsed that in my head over and over. I was just like, oh, if I just hadn't done that and I was visualizing it over and over... What happened the next time I came to that hole, that memory bubbled up. And then talking about what you were talking about earlier, how if you don't have acceptance over a shot, over the outcomes, and I wasn't, I started to tighten up over that hole. And what did I do? I did it again. And I just basically reinforced what I was visualizing. And then, then I went off and revisualized that again. And I played that hole awfully for pr probably a good year. 
And yeah, you know, it's so, so interesting, this stuff. But I know, I know we're being very pattern specific here, but yeah, it does apply to any part of the game that you're trying to improve. If you look at that, Adam, again, almost a universal experience for golfers who play the same course is that they will have a, a, a bogey hole, a hole that, they, as you just said, they don't feel comfortable on. You know, just look at what the dynamic of that is. How does that come about? Well, that's just a perfect piece of learning how your brain has taken in a, a perceived mistake, you've emotionalized it, you've replayed it many, many times. So what a wonderful piece of learning that you managed to keep hitting crappy shots on that hole over and over again. The flip side of that coin is everybody listening to your podcast will have had this experience whereby you set up to a certain shot in a certain place and you just know that you're going to hit a good one. You get that sense, that that feeling. Again, where does that come from? It's It's your brain basically is matching up that current experience with a previous past stored memory of success. So that, you know, the French have a, a saying, not the deja vu, the sense that you've been there before. And that's exactly what is happening. We can think of a few tall players that we talked about this. And, and I remember one in particular at the French Open had talked about how played pretty well the previous year. And, and, and we, we had a conversation on the phone and I got him to describe one of the holes can't remember where it was at the Paris. It was at the Paris National and one of the holes there. And he described his tee shot on 15 or 16 or whatever. And the conversation that we had the week before, and he got quite emotive about it because he did such a good shot. And blow me, that week he played in the French Open and he said he hit four shots. Literally, you could have put a small towel over those four drives where they landed each day. He said it was just uncanny that he got on that tee, got such a strong sensation that he was going to hit a good shot. And his body just acted on that memory. Incredible. <laughs> you mentioned uh, attention, and that was next on my list. Um, you, you have a, a chapter about where you place your attention, not just on the green, but even when you're walking up to the green. Uh, you mentioned stuff like breathing exercises. Let's talk a little bit about that, even before we get to the green. How to? Because I, I think we, as golfers, we have a mental budget. Only so much attention span, and we have to invest it wisely. What are some productive thoughts you've found working with players and their attention before the green and, and during the actual putting process? Attention. I mean, I've been doing my podcast for I think five years now, something like that, and it's been the central theme that's that's run through so many of the the episodes, John. That forget golf for a second. Your experience of life good, bad, or indifferent will be determined by attention. What you decide to pay attention will will dictate the quality of your life. So if you look at putting, I'm a, a huge believer in that most putts in tournaments are actually missed way before you actually get to the ball because we'll hit a good shot in, it goes to five feet or whatever, and then the narrative starts. I call it the time machine. You, you go inside of your head. And, you know, you see you've got this five-foot birdie putt. And as you're walking up to the green, the narrative is about all the putts that you've already missed today. Or the other one is, if I could just birdie this one, that'll get me to four under. If I just get to four under, I know 15's downwind and I've played 18 well. And all this this nonsense that the time machine creates inside of our head, projecting forwards into the future, going back into the past, regretting things that we've done. And again, being aware of this, you, you have the opportunity then to sort of say, okay, I can hear all this nonsense. I'm not, it's not going to stop it happening. But what you can do is choose to pay attention to something that's current. What is it that's current to your actual experience right now in this moment? Well, anytime you place your attention on your physical body, 
by definition, you bring yourself back to the here and now. Your body, your mind can do time travel. We're all doing it all the time. But, you know, as far as I know, nobody's body can do time travel, you know, unless you're Doctor Who. But looking at that, as you're walking up to the green, placing your attention on the feeling of your feet as you're actually walking onto the putting surface, placing your attention on the rise and fall of your breath. What that tends to do is just neutralize the time machine. It neutralizes back into the past, into the future. And again, to relate to your point earlier on, I think if you can do that as you're walking onto the green, your ability to take in the information that the green is supplying you for the task at hand, you greatly enhance your your perceptions, get heightened, your ability to take in external cues, get improved because you're not inside of your head in terms of projections you're actually present to your current experience so and it's just inherently pleasurable you know if you if everybody listening created a a trigger in the brain that when they see the ball land on the green that ball landing on the green is a trigger to actually become present to their experience be that the walk be that the sounds around them tuning into the senses whatever it whatever it may be i'm a great believer in walking meditation you know i've never had too much results from seated meditation in a formal way but every day i go out for a walk and for a period of time i'll i'll aim to to, to focus my attention on something that's current to my experience and it's an, it's just an inherently pleasurable thing to do but from a, a golfing perspective it's incredibly valuable because you clear the decks ready to attend to the task which is roll this ball from here into that hole over there yeah, I find it's almost a way to distract the demons from coming out because <laughs> every, everything we're talking about, we'll eventually do an episode on the short game book you did, but everything, the bad things we're talking about, that's happening in my short game currently. I'm focusing on all the right things. And when I'm thinking about putting, I'm humming songs to myself. I'm breathing deeply. I'm going through this experience to quiet the demons of don't three putt, don't miss this. And it's working for me the last couple of years and it's it's made it like this like you said it's a walking meditation almost and it's very pleasant it's part of the reasons why i think i like golf more than ever is because it's allowing me to focus versus off the golf course i'm distracted by twitter and all the other million things that distract me from running an online business and golf has become like a walking meditation for me it's it's super i think it's more important to me the last few years because of that we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. If you want to support our show, make sure to check out our sponsor, LinkedIn, by visiting linkedin.com slash sweetspot to post your job for free. When you're hiring for your small business, it's essential that you get quality and qualified professionals, and that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right people for your team with the fast and free tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board, they have a network of more than a billion professionals, many of which you can't find elsewhere, and this makes LinkedIn the best place to hire while making the process easy and intuitive. Because of how easy it is with LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses find qualified candidates in less than 24 hours. LinkedIn have just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier. That's why 2.5 million businesses trust LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash sweetspot. That's linkedin.com slash sweetspot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Link is in the show notes. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. 
This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. If you think that the current state of our brain activity, now I've done some work with a neuroscientist called Izzy Justice, and he said to me that, I mean, he's done thousands and thousands of EEG measurements of brain activity and he said that and this is it was, was a stunning thing that he said to me he said that the average baseline for the average american or brit these days in terms of brain activity that's your everyday brain activity he said he's akin to a schizophrenic in the 1950s great <laughs> and, and you think, <laughs> that's my awesome. goodness my goodness <laughs> we're, we're, and it just and you think we're just drowning in noise aren't we from the you know social media and things that we've got to do and you know, to-do lists and, and activity and rolling news and all that kind of stuff, all that brain activity. And then we come to a game like golf that actually demands, again, as Izzy Justice has pointed out to me, that peak performance, accessing your skills, comes from lowering brainwave frequency. If you can actually focus your attention on the feeling of your feet as you're walking on the golf course, the sounds around you, as trite as those things sound, you're actually lowering brainwave frequency. And as you lower brainwave frequency, it's kind of like the, the pathways from brain to muscles. If you use the analogy of a series of motorways, that you're clearing the traffic off the motorways. So the ability to coordinate movement, apply force, all of those things are greatly enhanced as the brainwave frequency reduces. So we're battling the modern world in many ways when we actually go and attempt to play golf. But there's so many of these interesting things that you can start to explore. Another thing that, as I understand it, that the most expensive shot in golf is actually a short, makeable miss putt is the most expensive shot in golf in the sense that what a lot of people do, they'll miss that makeable putt from short range and then the spike in brain activity between missing that putt and the next tee is so huge because they're inside of the head beating themselves up that when they flail that one, flare that next tee shot out of bounds and the an- analysis on TV is that he suddenly got trapped on the inside on that one is so far off the mark. It's the, it's the reaction to the missed putt that actually caused the inability to coordinate sequence in the swing on the next tee shot. I think that's one of the reasons why golfers gave so much importance to putting historically and you know modern analytics have said well it's not as important as we think i think there's some crossover there like you said i think that experience of of that jolt when you miss a two-footer statistically it shows up as you know whatever loss and strokes gain but it does have spillover effects if you let it to you know your next pre-shot routine and, and your next shot and it absolutely could influence that shot thereby losing you even more strokes so there's this disproportionate mental reaction to golf because it kind of solidifies your your score on the whole. And I find that important. For the people who are thinking about, you know, one of the, I think the hardest things to do is having a productive pre-shot routine on the greens. So when you're actually on the green, you know, with the players you work with, give us a few ideas that maybe people can experiment with on the practice green or in their next round of where can they point their attention to in that 
you know, 60 to 90 second window where they're actually on the greens and preparing themselves to putt. What have you found is, again, not the magic bullet, but at least more productive things to focus your attention on? Yeah. In terms of routines, and I'm not a massive fan of that phrase as in, you know, performing a routine, trying to do the same things physically every time. I think it's far more important what is going through through your mind. You know, you can have the same number of looks at the hole. You can, you know, hitch your trousers the same number of times, have the same number of waggles and all that kind of stuff. But if your brain's all over the place, uh, that is not that beneficial. With the Lost Art book, we sort of looked at it and said, let's strip a lot of this stuff away and help people create putts. And we kind of narrowed it down to two questions really one is what you would do as you walk onto the green and the other one is as you're looking at the putt and and the first question is very simple as you walk onto the green you ask yourself the question is it possible that i could hold this putt now if you think about that question it's not a statement like right i'm going to hold this putt because if you make a statement and you miss the putt that positive thinking can very quickly unravel into all series of negative statements but there's a big difference between positive questions and, and statements. So is it possible I could hold this putt? Well, if you think about it, is it possible? You may have missed everything all day, but you've got a 15-footer on the 12th. Is it possible you could hold it? Well, it's only not possible if you decide so. So that question really opens up the frame of reference to the possibility of holding the putt. And then very simply, and this, is, this would be the one I, I would ask, the guys and, and, and ladies listening to this to try out is to very simply ask yourself as you look at the putt what does this ball have to do to go in the hole and that seemingly ridiculously simple question everybody has their own individual answers to that but it's amazing how the brain constructs really effective images when you ask that simple question you know some people might see a a, a break point and then the entry into the hole, other, other putters will just see coloured line into the hole, they'll see the entry point, whatever it is. But that question is something that you could ask on every single putt. Now, does it mean that you'll hold every single putt? No, it doesn't. But that question, see, the power of questions, you know, if I, if I have asked everybody who's listening to this podcast, now, what can you hear in the background? And just pause for a second. Everybody's just left this podcast for a second and tuned into the surroundings. The big thing with questions that questions focus our attention, that key element to performance. So if, if good questions focus our attention, understanding that having a couple of really good questions in your armory as you go out on the golf course can be so, so useful in, in the battle to keep your attention. So what does this ball have to do to go in the hole? Play around with that. Go onto the putting green. Play a bunch of different putts. Don't repeat the same putt over and over again. Just give yourself lots of different putts. Ask that question and just see what your brain comes up with. See what the answers are and then see how you can, once you've asked the question and you've allowed the images to form, just see how your body then responds to that image. There was a plane going, going by Good. in the background. There you go, you tuned in. <laughs> as, and you know what? The question that you said, what's going on in the background? Yeah, that, that plane was not in my awareness at all until you just asked the question. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, it's right there. It's right there. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, you know, what we filter in and out is a result of perhaps our questions or if we don't ask the right questions, our unconscious will take over and ask its own questions, right? I think for a lot of golfers, 
you know, you can get lost in all of the sort of the mental game stuff of different steps in your routines and things like that. And I, I've seen it over the last 20 years or so, Adam. We've, in many ways, we've gone from thinking too much about the swing to th- thinking too much about our thinking if we're not careful. And, you know, when you break it down and say to players, you're not going to be able to control your mind. You're going to get crazy thoughts popping in at the most inopportune of moments. But what you can do if you get committed to it is you can ask a good question on every shot. You can ask a good question on every put. And if you did nothing other than that, those simple questions that I've just just alluded to, you will be taking control more so of your attention. And if you, as you know, if you put your attention in the right place, some really, really interesting things can happen in terms of performance. Here's another topic that probably could be a 20-part podcast series, but I'm just curious to get some of your top-level thinking on the why word, the yips. You, you did put this in the book, this topic. I think everyone has dealt with some version of the yips. I don't know how we define it perfectly, but that mistake that shows up <laughs> over and over again when you least wanted to, I think for me, it was pulling really short putts to the left. I had a bit of a tendency to do that for years under pressure. Sometimes I struggled with you know, 30, 40, 50 foot putts and what my hands were doing. What's your general philosophy on the yips for what causes it and how to solve it? And again, I'm giving you a very hard question there, but I'm just curious. That is 10 podcasts, John, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the hospital pass, that one. And I'm not going to defer from the question, but I would say that the best thing anybody could do if they're interested in looking at the real proper research on this is look at the work of Debbie Cruz. I think she's at Arizona State or has been at Arizona State. I mean, she's done some amazing stuff over the years all around yips and the papers that she's produced. As I understand it, that there is something that can be a physical element to this. We call it focal dystonia, whereby I think it happens in, in other walks of life where you repeat a movement over and over again, and the kind of commands from brain to body can become somewhat frayed. You know, they used to get it, people who were on the production line, you know, spot welders and things like that who were doing the same thing over and over again would get to a point where they really struggle to do that. Uh, darts players have it. I think there's been instances of the yips in surgery and things like that where repetitive movements take place. So there can be a physical component to this. And as Debbie explained to me, that's why when you do something completely different in terms of an action, you know, you go to the claw, you go split-handed or, or whatever it may be, that would, from a scientific perspective and a brain perspective, that would be an effective way of dealing with it because you're basically recruiting a new set of neurons, a new, a new a brain-to-body pathway to actually kind of create a new road in the brain to get the task done. So that's why if you are suffering from the yips, completely different action is definitely worth worth exploring. I think there's also clearly a strong psychological element to the, to the yips as well. And that's where I think the concept that we talked about earlier about the resistance to an outcome is, to me, one of the lead-ups to getting the yips. Nobody ever yips when they're putting without the hole. You know, that, that just doesn't happen. So I think really exploring the concepts around acceptance. Can you be 100% okay if this thing misses? And it, and it's, it sounds ultra-negative, that. But when you can really get your head around acceptance, 
then it's surprising the difference it makes to the stroke you put on it. Another interesting one I've found, and I don't know whether you've experimented with this, Adam, is that I've had a number of people who've had the yips over the years, and when they close their eyes, again, the yips tend to mysteriously disappear because I think another element of the yips can be an anticipation of impact and a resistance to impact. So that's that's another area to explore. I think, was it Garcia who won the Masters actually put him with his eyes closed at, at one period? Yeah, I've, I've seen it where, you know, people are doing practice swings beautifully and there's no yip there. And then when they put the ball in the way, the yip occurs. And so you get down on your knees as a coach and start crying. No, I mean, you, you grab the golf ball and you drop it in the way. And you, you, so you, you hold your hand above the line and you get them to make their practice swings. And then just at the last moment, you drop it and in the way of their practice swing and the yip goes away. I've had a couple of experiences where that has helped people, but it was just more of an interesting experiment for me how when you put the ball in the way, amazingly, the yip appears again. But when you were talking about acceptance, just to kind of segue, I did an experiment once where I asked golfers to hit at a pole in the background. So on, on the driving range. So aim at this single pole. So it was a very, very narrow focus. And then I, I was secretly taking account of how many times they would hit a fairway that was actually two or three poles wide. And then I would ask those same people, okay, now I want you to hit at this area. So it was a wider area. And what I expected to find was that the narrow focus would give better results. And that wasn't the case. Some people had better results with a narrow focus, but some people produced straighter outcomes and hit more fairways when they had the wider focus. And I know speaking from experience, when I get too narrow with my focus and I tell myself I have to hit this specific spot, I perform worse. Whereas when I hold a driver in my hand and I just say, right, anywhere up here will do, and I have a wider area in my head, I'm much freer with my swing. So I, th I think that has a lot to do with acceptance as well. The wide focus for me just allows me to accept more outcomes. And so uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on that because traditional... Again, Adam, that's brilliant. It's such a hugely important area for people to explore because virtually every... Every book will say, every psychology book will say, aim at the smallest possible target. You know, the idea of, you know, aim at the bullseye and you're not going to miss the board. You know, well, I've had a few people aiming at bullseyes and they've not only missed the board, they've nearly missed the room. It's kind of, it's kind of like, I talk about a perception of difficulty and what happens in the brain for some people when the perception of difficulty, that the task is difficult, I think you get the reverse effect where they, they basically tighten up, they seize up and produce really, can produce really sort of wide shots and wide puts and things like that. And I think you've related it to putting. You know, if you, if you ask most people, what is the line? And then they say, how big is the line? And most people, I think, they perceive that the line is as big as the line that they put on the ball. Now, the line that they put on the ball will be, we talk, me and Gary talk about putting down the razor's edge that if you have a line on the ball and you perceive that that to be your line, then, you know, I don't know how many times you've, you've ever tried to knock a roller put down a razor's edge, but you've got a pretty low tolerance of, of capability there, and people really tighten up with that. We talk a lot about, we'll give an image, that if you, if you get your pace just right on a putt, and we, we sort of roll three golf balls towards the hole, if you get your pace right, basically three golf balls will pretty much fit in the hole. So we talk about the three-ball highway, and the idea being that instead of trying to put down the razor's edge, 
what you actually see on your putts is a, a line that's as wide as three golf balls. And we'll get we'll get a couple of clubs put or alignment sticks three golf balls wide and you say to somebody do you think you could you think you could get the ball down the middle of that that area and they look at you of course i can and they just and guess what when when you get them to do that they send it down the middle pretty much every time so that perception can i send it down the three ball highway or can i keep it on the razor's edge for a lot of people to your point adam it really really frees them up when they change the perception of the task to one one of being much easier i remember years ago playing in a in a pro am in portugal and it was really slow it was one of those horrendous sort of european 6 hour rounds and we're playing with a bunch of guys and you know we were struggling a little bit and i remember we, we shouldn't have done it really but we, we got on one hole and uh, we, the whole the tee was perched at the side of the sea. And I said, right, fellas, let's just set a few free here. And I had some practice balls in the bag. And I said, let's see if we can hit the sea. And, you know, we stood on the tee. And obviously, pretty difficult to miss the sea. But it was amazing watching these guys who'd been struggling on this tight golf course to suddenly free themselves up as they were hitting it into the sea. Now, clearly, you're not going to miss the sea. But it was interesting how that perception of, of difficulty completely changed the movement that they were making. So... I think for anybody listening, experimenting with your targets, as you say, Adam, and, and creating different perception of what the task is can can really yield some really big changes in the in the movement that you make. Yeah, I've found that I think most golfers defer to obsession over the line. Yeah. And that dominates their thoughts while they're before the putt, while they're standing over it. So, and as you mentioned, like you actually have a wider window than you think. You don't need to start the putt perfectly online every time but when you're using that attention span on that anecdotally speaking that made me worry about the mechanics of my putting stroke more am i going to leave it open or closed that those type of thoughts which i think we would all agree are not productive as you're standing over the ball as i've shifted my focus more towards speed and i think learning aim point allowed me to do that because it kind of does the read for me, so to speak. And I don't really, I trust it and I don't really hem and haw over it. I'm like, okay, that's a number one slope done. And then I'm just looking at my target and trying to match the speed. That's that's the thought that is dominating my mind as I approach the ball. I think that's allowed me to at least stop worrying about the mechanics of the putting stroke. I don't know if that will work for everyone, but I'm not the first person who's certainly said that Focusing on speed is is more productive than obsessing over a lot. It's line. so much more productive. You know, we say in the in the book, you know, if the I've done countless seminars, I'll ask the audience and they'll say, What two things do you need to hold up on? They all get it right. You need pace and you need line. And so, well, which one is more important? And some people will say line, the vast majority will say pace. I say, okay, you, I think you're right. But then you look at what do most people work on? If you look at the, all the gadgetry that there is in putting, what is it all focused on? Line. <laughs> I've seen it for so many years, you know, various tours around the world. You know, I call it the torture chamber. You know, you go to the putting green on a, a Tuesday and Wednesday and you see... Oh, God, all the ropes and stuff. The, it's... <laughs> you know, the, the, the mirrors and the ropes and the lines and... And we're not saying for one minute that that doesn't have a part to play. But I'll tell you what, if you were going to take a shortcut to become a, a really, really good putter where you don't three-put that often and you, you just find that the ball finds the way into the hole from a few of those 10, 15, 20-footers, is just get better at pace. Now, then you look at that and say, well, get better at pace. What is that all about? People say it's, it's feel. Well, what is feel? 
really, if you, if you strip it all away, to get better at pace, it's about understanding that you're applying a force with an implement. That is it. You're applying a certain force with an implement to influence the speed that the ball rolls at. And what's the best way to dull your feel for that is to become obsessed with the start lines and become obsessed with your technique and things like that. And your ability to apply the correct force, I think, is then dulled. I think humans have an instinctive ability to apply the correct force when the task is clear. You know, if you're if you're eating a meal and you've got a tough piece of steak, you'll instinctively apply a little bit more force with the knife just to cut through it. You don't you don't need lessons in that. We instinctively respond to that task if our head's pretty clear. So I think, you know, again, we could do another two podcasts on developing better pace control, but my goodness to me, it's the shortcut to becoming so much better on the greens. That's one of the arguments I've always had against being overly technical in your thought process with putting. I mean, with most things, but with putting especially. And I, I don't want to, you know, denigrate all the technical coaches out there. There's definitely room for that or place in that. But I think, you know, even watching the evolution of a lot of the putting coaches that I follow, they start out very, very technical. It's all about stroke, stroke, stroke. And then as they get more intelligent, more well-read, more experienced, more evolved as a coach, they tend to go towards more things that are a bit kooky, like visualization or things like that. And yeah, I, I mean, if you get overly focused on your technique, that is one way to greatly reduce your ability to control the speed because you're so busy thinking about, you know, am I going straight back, straight through, or on, on this arc is the club face opening, closing. You get so focused on that that you lose the visualization of what you're trying to do with the golf ball, which is why I think your questions are great because that they bring you back to, I think, what's important, at least while playing and performing. I'm not saying there's not room for, you know, technical training while you're training things and trying to ingrain new moves. We heard a great story as we were writing the book about a legendary Irish golfer called Harry Bradshaw, who was reputedly one of the best putters of all time. And apparently he he had one single putting drill that he did every single day. And it's something I'd strongly recommend everybody everybody to have a go at. We call it the Bradshaw drill, where you simply go out to the green with two golf balls. It's the only time we recommend going out to the putting room with two balls. And what you do is you is you send the first ball out to a random distance and then you see if you can get the second ball to just touch the first ball. And it's a great way to develop feel for applying that force. It's a great way to ch- sort of tune into your capability of judging pace. It's a great way to tune into the pace of the greens for the day that you're playing. I look back at that and, and I think, you know, these nuggets of gold from these great players in the past and you think, he did that drill every single day and was one of the greatest putters apparently of all time. And you think, well, what a surprise. He must have been a master of pace. Yeah, I, I've always felt the longer I've played golf, I felt that putting was the more instinctual slash athletic part of the game because, you know, to hit a 100-yard shot, a 200-yard shot, that's a full swing impact type thing. Whereas putting, where we're talking about speed control here, that's more of the can I toss a baseball to my buddy? Or if you're playing a game of cornhole in the backyard and trying to throw the, the the beanbag onto that, you know, that wooden target, it's accessing that type of athlete, which I think most people have in them where they can see something and kind of 
match it with the motion of their arm without thinking about the mechanics too much. And because golf is a very technical game, we've removed that or we allow ourselves to remove that from putting because we often think it has to be solved with the technique of our stroke. And again, I'm not someone who diminishes that. I think you know, when you're at home, like hitting a bunch of eight footers and stuff, like that's the time where you can work on your quote unquote stroke and say, what can I do to hit a, this perfectly straight putt in the hole and have that sensation of of delivering a, a square delivery? That's fine and all. But then when you're out on the green, it's more of the, can I toss the football to my buddy in stride? Like that's the part of your brain and body I think you need to access more. And it's much easier to do on the putting green because I just don't think the demands are nearly as difficult as the full golf swing. That That's a whole other set of demands that require far more precision and, and coordination in your body. But I, I truly believe most people could become better putters. Like you said, just tackle the speed thing and then you'll probably remove the biggest impedance to scoring, which is three putting. So but yeah, worrying about your stroke all the time is hard when, you, when you're expending that mental energy there. It makes it very difficult because then you seize up and then you start guiding the putter rather than just kind of letting it happen. Well, that's why the three ball highway is so liberating for people. If you if you can imagine that you've got that three ball tolerance to fit into the hole, if you get your pace right, you stop trying to be perfect with your, with your stroke. You've got a little bit of leeway. But but. Yes, you know, developing some awareness about presenting the face open and close. Of course, that should be part of your training. I'm a big believer in, and I know you guys talk a lot about this, you know, becoming very aware of where you're striking the striking the, the ball in terms of the putter because good putters hit it out the middle all the time, don't they? And, you know, can, can you go on the green and hit a few putts when you start with the ball in the middle of the putter? Can you hit a few putts deliberately out of the toe, a few deliberately out of the heel, and then sense that centred strike? That is a great development of skill. But becoming so perfectionistic about start lines and perfect strokes, you know, years ago I spent time with Fred Shoemaker and I was struggling with putting because I'd gone down this technical route. And uh, I remember him saying to me, do you enjoy your putting stroke? And I looked at him as though, what, enjoy? You know, it's torturing me kind of thing. And he said, he said, he said you know, no, he said, C- could you actually enjoy the motion for its own sake? And I'd never thought about that. I'd never gone in that direction. And I just, it was interesting. He said, just just hit some putts in a way that you actually enjoy the movement. And it was interesting what sort of took over, John. It, it was it, I set up slightly differently, maybe a little bit open, a bit crouched or whatever it was, but it felt good to me. And it was amazing how I just started to, to roll the, be- the, the ball better from a position of, of just being in tune with a, a movement that felt good for me. It resonated with me personally. It was like a tuning fork almost that I was giving myself, instead of trying to get it, quote, uh, correct or technically correct, I just allowed myself that, that freedom to just explore what way would my body want to organize around the idea of, of applying force to a ball, moving it towards a hole. Yeah, I think also we touched on acceptance a little earlier. And that's where, you know, you mentioned a lot of putting stats in the book. Adam and I have had Mark Brody on the show. We'll bring it up all the time. But just going over those PGA Tour make rates from different distances and getting away from the broadcasts. I know you worked with Graham McDowell when he was winning the US Open. And when he was at his top form, I mean, that was some of the best putting I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he was just making everything. But of course, we were being shown that on TV. And I think, unfortunately, we set ourselves up for that expectation. But I think just 
knowing that putting is not this binary thing, make or miss, you know, success or failure. There's there's a lot in between. And stepping up to a putt, like as you said earlier, you don't want to say to yourself, I'm going to miss this. It's more it's okay if I miss this. It's not the end of the world. And just give yourself permission to do that. It can free up a lot of things again to what are we trying to do? Let the body self-organize and make this smooth rhythmic motion rather than trying to guide the thing if we're worrying about missing the five footer so hard to do but i think the stats are incredibly helpful and always something that i get feedback on whenever we bring them up because people just don't know what's you know i think a a 90 golfer is only going to make something like 20 to 30 percent of their putts from eight feet something like that i think mark brody had it so it's hard but at the same time you can't step up thinking that either so it's a delicate balance Well, that's where i think the possible question comes in is that yeah you know you've got a realistic appraisable about what's the chances of it going in but is it possible i could hold it well yes it is yes it is possible unless unless you decide otherwise it's interesting that you mentioned graham there i mean doesn't mind me sharing this story but a couple of years ago he got in touch again. I mean, I've worked with Graham on and on and off for the best part of 20 years or so. And uh, we used to see him a lot when he lived in Manchester. And we used to spend a lot of time with him at Port Rush. But it's, it's been more challenging while he's been in the States, obviously, in terms of location. But he got in touch a couple of years ago when he'd been struggling with his putting. And, and he said he'd been, the putting coach had said to him he'd got some issues with his putting stroke. Which I thought was interesting that you know a guy who's a guy who's held everything to you know win Ryder Cups and Opens, US Opens, things like that. But anyway, we got talking and I, and, I, and I said, you know, just remind me of some of the putts that you've held, Graham. And he, and I said, I noticed last couple of times I've I've seen you that you that you're not doing something that you've always done in your in your routine. And he is a bit of silence, and he said, "You're going to mention the breathing, aren't you?" And I said, "Well, I don't say it's up to you which way you go, but something we'd worked on years ago was the idea. He went through his routine, and then almost as a as a signal to his whole system that he'd done everything he could, he would always consciously just release his breath as the culmination of his routine. And he was about to go and play in the I think it was a Corrales tournament in the Dominican Republic, and." He said, okay, let's let's get back to that, that you do your routine, you input all the information, but the breath, and it was like the acceptance breath, that, that you, you know, you're, not, you're going to accept the outcome, good, bad, or indifferent, but you've done your bit. Anyway, he went and played in the, in the Corrales tournament, and it was in the Saturday round. He actually had 20 putts in the, in the third round, which is, which is never a bad idea on a Saturday in a PGA Tour event. And he had 15 straight single putts. He only came out of his uh, out of his zone on sixteen when his caddy reminded him. He said, "Graham, do you realise you've had, you've had fifteen straight single putts here? Probably one of the best putting rounds that's ever happened on the on the PGA Tour." He ended up winning the tournament, but that was all he'd worked on that week was just to go through his process, go through his routine, and then just release his release his breath to signal the acceptance. Now, was was it all was it all down to the breath? No, it wasn't. It was just it was just tapping into, you know, his, his inherent skills that he was in there. It was interesting though. A few of the experts said afterwards how much his putting stroke had actually improved that week, which I thought was uh, <laughs> that was interesting. Well, I guess that that is the common question we're always trying to solve on the show is that we always think the solution to everything in golf is technique because that's what we're conditioned to think. That's what the industry teaches. That's what we hear on broadcasts and. Of course, I accept that technique is incredibly important, but you know, you're talking about a guy that he's got <laughs> one of the best putters of all time. Yeah, I mean, he has everything. It's just a matter of, and I think this is relative to every golfer. 
the golfers I'm around that I see, like I, I always think they're capable of more. It's just getting out of your own way. And a lot of that is we recorded an episode on, on control, just the idea of what can you control and not control in golf recently. And I think that was one of the things that I've tried to learn over the years is I, I was always squeezing so hard at all parts of the game to control it because that's probably the type of person I am outside of golf. I love to be in control and there's so much we can't control in golf. And I found that the more I accepted whatever was going to happen, the more I was allowing the work I did off the course to come out on the course. So I was getting out of my own way. And I think that that exists for every level of player, even beginners. I think there's more to access when you can have the right mindset. You know, we're always arguing over mind and body in golf, but yeah, they're quite linked up. I think most people who play the game for a while understand that at this point. But yeah, that the idea of breath and breathing is that's become one of my I don't know if life rafts is the right thing, but focuses, whatever you would call it. It's been very important for me. If you look at martial arts that, you know, it stood the test of time, martial arts, yoga, meditation, these things that have been around for centuries. What is at the heart of a lot of those disciplines is, is at some point paying attention to the breath. You know, it's that element of something that's happening unconsciously all the time but we can influence it consciously. And I think there's something about that bridge between conscious and unconscious mind when you pay attention to the breath can be really beneficial for you for your game. You know, but you just use the phrase there, you know, getting out of our own way. In many ways that, that phrase is banded around, but what does it actually mean, getting out of our own way? And as again, I, I understand it from the neuroscience perspective, getting out of our own way is lowering brainwave frequency. If you can understand when you're getting in your way, when you're getting in your own way and you're not accessing the skills that you currently have, you are suffering from an increased brainwave activity. And what is it that's causing that? It may well be on the golf course, diving too deeply into mechanics and not understanding what you need to do to just lower those frequencies to allow that communication from brain to muscles to actually flow as freely as possible. I've often said to people that, you know, the number one thing that people want is consistency in golf. And I say, okay, so what are you working on? And they reel off a list of 10, 20 different things. And so, you know, from my experience, and as I understand the motor learning literature, and, and you're alluding to this here, Carl, is that when we think more, when we overload our brain, we actually become less consistent movement-wise as well. And so, you know, I say for people, that can be an advantage if you are trying to change. Okay, so if you're in training mode and you are trying to make a change to your movement, great, think think a lot about it. Really think hard about it because that's going to help, help you to make that initial change. But at some point you have to, if you want that new move to come out, if you want consistency of movement, you've got to clear those highways and actually think less about it. And it's an interesting thing. And just being able to tap into those two different mindsets. And I feel personally like I've mastered that part of the game just because I understand, because I read so much about motor learning literature and I teach it so much. So I'm able to, if I'm try on the range trying to do something different, I can really focus and nothing else exists. I'm so focused on this one thing. But when I'm on the course, I can completely flip that, uh, you know, change that and turn that switch off. I think, you know, there's several Tiger Woods interviews where he's alluding to this stuff. I as think well. Harrington, Padraig Harrington has been a great example of that, Adam, hasn't he? That 
You know, you've got on the one hand very, very technically aware golfer and he's always working on something on his golf swing, but he's he's always said he's never, never had a technical thought on the golf course. He switches that brain into a more open sense of it. I'm sure he's, he's, the, the, the focus of attention on the golf course is very, very simple and free from technical input that allows, as you say, allows that capability to, to take over on the golf course. So, you know, I think... You know, you could kind of summarize it. It's great, the, the idea of developing skills and, as you say, understanding that you can put attention or you need to put your attention on, on how you're moving your body, how you're moving the club, developing skills, but also developing the skill then of switching the mindset when you're trying to perform. You know, I'm all, all the sort of stories that I've heard over the years, I mean, I think from, I mean, you know, for my sins, I'm a Man United football fan, and I read something recently about the great manager in the 1960s, Matt, Sir Matt Busby, and we look at an age now where it seems that many football teams are paralysed by analysis in, in many ways, and apparently Matt Busby, Sir Matt Busby used to say very little, little in a team talk, but the, the last thing he would say as the players went out onto the pitch, he'd just say, go and enjoy yourself, lads, make sure you pass to a red shirt. And, you know, what sounds a trite comment, you think, well, you know, it's not a bad idea that if, you're, if your team's playing in red and you make sure you keep passing to those guys, you're probably not going to be too far away because if you've got the ball all the time in football, it's pretty hard for anybody to score. Probably wasn't aware of it at the time, but that was just a great way of freeing them up to go and express themselves on the football pitch. Well, I know we don't have you forever, Carl. Probably approaching our, getting close to our limit here for our guests. We try and be not too demanding of everyone's time. If you had to give people some homework in terms of practicing or your just philosophy on how to increase the skills when you're off the course, what is your philosophy or, or what you've worked on with players and, and the types of practice they can do on putting to actually make them a better putter, not make them feel like they're going to be a better putter? Because you know, I, I think stepping up over a bunch of eight feet putts with all the gadgets and hitting them in the hole over and over again. I, I've been there and it, it kind of develops maybe a false sense of confidence. And when you go out on the course, you're just not experiencing the same thing. What are your kind of some general thoughts on practice and, and best practices, maybe some games, stuff like that? Well, if we look at, again, I'm sure Adam Adam knows all of this. If we, if we look at the motor learning research, the idea of standing in the same place over and over again, replicating movement has very limited efficacy. If you look at things that that we've learned as human beings that are, that are miracles, really, I mean, we still don't fully understand how we learn to walk. It's an absolute incredible feat of engineering that the, that the humans manage to go from crawling around as babies to actually walking upright in balance and then running. When you think about how a baby learns to walk, they don't learn to walk by getting it right. They fall to the left, they fall to the right, they fall forward, fall backwards, and eventually the brain organizes somewhere in the middle. They kind of trap the feeling. So one thing I'd, I'd ask people to explore, and it's, it's just it's so much more fun to do things like this, I think, is, is, is to go on the putting green and hit some putts and see if you can miss the putt slightly on the right side of the hole. See if you can miss the putt slightly on the left side of the hole. See if you can just leave it on the edge of the hole. See if you can knock it just a fraction past the hole. So you're exploring either side of correct and then hit a bunch of putts see if you can then find the middle ground of that and then I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge believer as much as you possibly can go out and, and create lots of games where it's a single ball to a single hole and you know the demand on the on the golf course is that you've got a whole putt based on one estimate you get one chance to guess what this putt is going to do 
and yet we stand there hitting three putts. Why the hell do people hit three putts, take three balls onto the putting green, beyond the fact that they come in sleeves of three? It's craziness. So go out there and, and create lots of scenarios where you've just got that one chance to estimate what this putt's going to notice your tendencies. Do you tend to over-borrow, under-borrow? What's your, what's your pace control like? So explore either side of correct with what I've just said, but then lots and lots of single ball putting hours and, and the Bradshaw drill. I think the Bradshaw drill for pace is, uh, is tremendous. What is that? The two balls that I mentioned earlier on where you, where you roll one ball out and then you try and get the second ball to touch the first ball. Oh, okay. Right, I didn't connect the name. I've found that anecdotally I, I've <laughs> been, probably been the worst at putting when I'm sitting there and I, I see a lot of other golfers do this too. Where they're just hitting the same putt over and over and over and over again to the hole, and you're—I mean, I guess that can have some value in perhaps arriving at what a straight putt feels like. But again, that's not the question that's asked on the golf course. The question's a little more complex because now you've got different distances and different undulations. And to your point, if you went on the green with one ball, you're asking yourself that question more and more often versus the, okay, I've perched myself over here from eight feet. I know it's going to break from right to left about six inches, and I'm just going to hit the same start line every time. And then I'm going to go out on the course next week expecting better putting, and I'm still going to be frustrated. So Adam and I have talked about putting before on a separate episode, and we're, we're of a similar mind frame that I often actually think playing enough golf makes you a better putter because it's just so hard. It's one part of the game where you have to, the speed control more so, where you have to be out there and hopefully paying attention to the feedback and adjusting that you can't recreate that. I know it's one of the easiest things to practice at home with the putting mat, but that only solves a small part of the equation. And I would tell people, you know, if that's your only form of putting practice and you're not playing a lot, it's going to be a lot harder to develop that that feel, that intangible thing or, you know, the, the amount of force you're applying, which is the more tangible explanation. Like that's just so hard to make that happen. And that's probably the biggest challenge of putting. So just honestly being out there on the greens, whether it's in the practice area, hitting that one shot, giving it more meaning or actually playing enough golf. That's so, so important. And I don't think enough people realize that, unfortunately. A huge part of all short game shots is the prediction skills you know if you're hitting a chip it's like predicting how is this going to come out of this lie is it going to come out hot is it going to come out with less spin or is it going to grab with putting how much is this going to break what speed do i have to roll it and so when you're practicing repetitively you're not practicing that prediction skill you are the first time you roll it there but the second time you're just practicing a, a movement now and so when, specifically in my case, I miss most putts because of prediction errors, not because of, because I can't roll it. I mean, I could stand on a putting mat and roll a hundred in a row from five, ten feet even sometimes and then <laughs> wonder why I'm a bad putter if my stroke is so, so good. It's these prediction skills because I'm not getting out on the practice green and actually practicing the game enough and if I were to practice I certainly would do what Carl's recommending and hit different putts each time go through those questions you know not stand there doing repetitive practice so I think uh, I don't want to give away the entire book there's a lot more in the book that's awesome and helpful Adam do you have any more big questions for Carl before we let him go on with his <laughs> night no no not at all was, I think it was a great conversation I think loads of avenues of conversation walked up that uh, came up that we could talk about again in the future i'm sure 
Well, I'm excited to talk about the wedge stuff and the short game because <laughs> you have another book on that. I'm going to read that because as I said, I, I think I've drifted off to asking myself all the wrong questions with the, with wedges and having the wrong attention over the ball. And that's something I probably, again, we don't have unlimited time as golfers. I put more focus on my driver and putter and irons and that's helped. But I think the wedges have fallen by the wayside a bit. So I'm looking forward to talking to you about that and hopefully reinvigorating my attention on that part. No, of the it'd be, uh, we've certainly enjoyed tonight's conversation. It's always a good sign when uh, time disappears. I think uh, it's just great just great to share these ideas and uh, share, share the information. I and mean, I think probably a good thing to do if we do the, the short game is get Gary on, on, on board with that as well because he spent a lot of time with Roger Cleveland and Bob Volke and he's the, he's the real wedge expert. So it would be uh, good to get his input as well. I would love to do that. Let's, we'll definitely schedule that for the near future. Like I said, the law, I mean, it's a, it's a great series of books. I've just started with the putting one and I enjoyed it. So Carl, can you tell people where the book is available? We have listeners all around the world. So where, where can they get this? Yeah, thing? basically the Amazon channels, uh, there's the, the lost art of putting, the lost art of golf and the lost art of the, uh, the short game, all the sort of normal Amazon channels. There's a, there's a, there's a website, uh, the lost art of golf, uh, you can have a look at, there's some videos on there and, uh, I have a, an app called the uh, the Mind Caddy right? for anybody who sort of resonates with some of the things that I've, I've talked about. It's a free app that can actually help you track your your mental game activities, and it's it's a lot of the time we have these concepts, but we don't do anything about them. And uh, and, and the Mind Caddy just allows you to sort of stay on track with that, so you can have a look at that at the uh, at the App Store. And you also have a great podcast with tons of guests. Where can people find that? It's a it's the Brain Booster, correct? Yeah, just like yourselves, um, I've been doing it for a few years now, and uh, it's it's great just getting some wide ranging opinions on there. It comes out every uh, every Friday, and the, uh, the the website with all the sort of training courses that I do for for coaches, etc. That's the, uh, the the mindfactor dot com. If people want to have a look at that and uh, find out more information there. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Hopefully, people. Whenever I bring up putting, I want to get people thinking outside of the box i mean we do that with a lot of topics but i think with putting you can really go outside of the box and you've been a great resource on that so thank you adam where can everyone find you adamyounggolf.com and phew obviously i love carl stuff a lot so I, I highly recommend that stuff definitely and if you want a compliment to to Carl's work, the practice manual. I go through a lot of stuff on attention and how to practice, obviously, with it being called the practice manual, and that's available on Amazon. And John, I believe you have a book on Amazon as well. I do. We all have books on Amazon. Look at that. What a, like what a coincidence. It's all in the same place. I know. Feeding the machine. Yeah, but it's a good machine for us, though. You can find my book, The Four Foundations of Golf, where I, I do, I'm not a putting guru, but I've gotten a lot better and I, I share some of my experiences that certainly I think someone like Carl has a, a similar philosophy. But yeah, it's it's a difficult problem to solve. Putting's hard for everyone, but I think if you go in with the right mindset and as Carl says, ask yourself the right questions, you can see great progress. So thanks again to Carl. Thanks again for everyone who listens. We will see you next time with a new episode.